this is Faith Giving Sunday for the church family. That means a lot. If you're a guest, be our guest. And uh, feel free not to even give in the offering. That's our gift to you today. But for those of you who regularly worship here, this is Faith Giving Sunday, and that your Faith Giving uh, commitments will be collected as a part of the regular offering. We'll be using larger collection cups today, and uh, be sure to put that in there. This is a, a step of faith for many people, and we want to encourage you to be faithful, and God will bless you for your faithfulness without doubt. I'm going to ask Dan Nyquist to come. He was expecting this at the end of the service, but 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 get ready. Be instant in season and out of season. You know, we're in this letter. We're coming back today to 1 Peter. And 1 Peter is written to aliens. It's written to sojourners. It's written to people who are just passing through. Scattered groups of believers all over the northern part of Asia Minor. And it fits us well because we're the same thing. We're, a, we're aliens. We're sojourners. We're just passing through. There's a lot of good counsel in here on how to behave as we're just passing through. But the fact of the matter is, the church in the early days was persecuted. There are places in the world today where the church is uh, persecuted. And there's an event coming this Friday night that might have some significance to you in light of the fact that uh, we're all a bunch of sojourners here. So I'm going to ask Dan to come and just share for a second about that, if he would. Well, here we go. Um, so this Friday night, a couple years ago, we had a, we had a chance to gather together and to, to join our brothers and sisters in Christ who are persecuted around the world as uh, a pastor from the States has gone continually overseas to bring the word to a church body that is so desperate for it, hunger for it, um, where they gather together for hours, for, for days in a row, for 12 hours they gather and just spend time in the word. And so... Um, Two years ago, uh, Brother Kevin Ness brought to us, as a team was coming back from Haiti, um, the opportunity to gather together and to join our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted and to study the word with them, study the word on their behalf so that we can take the word of God and go. And so often we feel um, like we have an inadequate knowledge of the word, maybe, or an inability to share it because we don't really understand what's happening. And, and so two years ago, we did the Old Testament. We did a survey. We gathered together on a Friday night. And, and this Friday, we're going to do the New Testament. And so we want to gather, continue to remember that we, we are gathering alongside our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted. We will spend time praying for them, as well as being taught the New Testament and the survey of the New Testament for the glory of God and the, and the worship of Jesus so that his message, the message of the gospel, the good news of the gospel will go forth. And so I encourage you to come on Friday to gather 6.30 to 11.30. It's very intense, um, but it's so good to spend time um, just hearing from the Lord, seeing his words, spending time gathering together with brothers and sisters here. And so 6.30 to 11.30 this Friday night right here, we'll plan to meet. I encourage you to come. Thank you, Dan. It's just a reminder to all of us, isn't it, that... Uh, when we come to faith in Christ, we gain a family. In some cases, people lose their families when they come to faith in Christ. But we also gain a family. And we're related to anyone and everyone around the world who knows Jesus Christ 
and wants to honor Jesus Christ by the way they live their lives. And it's a bond. I'm sure you've experienced this, where you've run into someone that you didn't even know, but you found that they were a believer, and you felt an immediate sense of connection with them. Sometimes that connection is stronger than even with your own blood relatives because of the bond of Christ. So it would be a good experience for all of us to be here on Friday night and to enjoy this time together. Back in his heyday, when Jesse Owens was an Olympic star, someone did an experiment with him. They had him lay on the floor next to an infant. And every move that infant made, Jesse Owens had to make. And if you notice the motor skills of a, of, a, of a baby, they're not very well coordinated, but they never stop moving. In a few minutes, Jesse Owens was worn out. The baby just kept right on going. Parents of two-year-olds have known that as well. When you stop, they don't. Somebody said, when you tell a child to be still and God tells them to wiggle, they always obey God. There's another thing going on too, though. There's this whole thing of stubbornness, this whole thing of willfulness that you can see. And you don't, your child doesn't need to be two years old for you to see that. Your child can be months old and you can see that, oh, they've got a thing or two to learn about submissiveness. The whole issue of submission is a huge one in our day. Parents of teenagers know this too. It seems at five they have all the questions. At 15 they've got all the answers. I knew a guy that was raised two teenage daughters and he told one of them one time when she was telling him how to live his life and how she ought to be able to live her life, you know, while you're young and you still have all the answers, you should really get an apartment and get out on your own. Maybe I should help you do that because he was tired of playing the submissiveness battle with her. Then comes adolescence, and then comes adulthood. And in some, this issue of submissiveness or submission never goes away. It's very, very obvious, even in their, into their adult years. You know, I've made a habit of watching leaders for years now. And there's an Achilles heel, at least for some leaders, in terms of this issue of submission. Nobody can control them. Nobody can give them counsel. Somebody said power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I've seen that in some leaders. I've come to a conclusion about leadership. Anybody, whether in leadership or not, but certainly those who are in leadership, need to come under or be open to censure. Everybody needs to come under authority. Everyone needs to become accountable to someone. If not, we all become like runaway trains. We all become like loose cannons on the deck of a ship, at least potentially. And it's not accidental that God also knows the value of submissiveness and accountability. He's carefully illustrated through the, through the example and the teaching of the prophets and the apostles. You can find it over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. I'm here to tell you that contrary to public opinion, submission has great value. In the epistle of Peter, where there's a strong emphasis on Christian living, he suggests three areas where we need to be submissive. 
Before we get into those areas, I just want to draw another heavy line under the fact that submissiveness means influence. It's not a weakness. It's a strength. That flies in the face of what we're taught in our culture. We're taught in our culture that if you're submissiveness, it's a sign of weakness and you lose influence. The Council of Scripture says, no, it's just the opposite. So if we want to live an influential life, we'll learn the dynamic of what it means to submit. There are other ways of putting this. We'll learn the dynamic of what it means to be cooperative, to be self-effacing, to live life with a humble spirit, a gentle and contrite spirit. So let's look at it today. These three areas that are outlined in the epistle of Peter about submissiveness. Submissiveness is likely to influence civil authorities. Now, we dealt with this a few weeks ago. If you remember, the message title was three words to remember this side of heaven. Abstain from sinful desires. Submit to the authorities above us. And behave like free people. It's an influence for God to submit. Look at verse 13 of chapter 2. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. It is God's will that we be an influence through doing the right thing. Look at verse 15. It underscores that point. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. It's something we're free to do. Look at verse 16. For live as free people, free men it says, but it means men and women. Live as free people. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. People who are truly free have no problem submitting. It's those that are bound up that need to think they need to keep uh, grabbing for authority and, and uh, a prominent role in everything. So we're not going to spend any more time on that point one today. It's just review because we talked about it a few weeks ago. But let's look at point two and three. Our submissiveness influences even God. I want you to notice something. Notice in the case that we're in this passage before us, to whom submitting is being done. Verse 18. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Now the equivalent to slaves, because we don't have a slave culture, at least not that I'm aware of in the United States, not dominant like it used to be before the Civil War. So... Good enough for us, applicationally, would be to think in terms of overseer or employer-employee situations. Someone under whom we're supposed to come in terms of authority. The overall context suggested that those who were under authority could have an influence by a submissive attitude. Now that's encouraging. We're to be salt and light to all people, even to those who have authority over us, even when they act somewhat like ogres. But notice whom Peter states is categorically pleased in all of this. Look at verse 20. How is it to your credit if you even receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable with who? With God. 
So the stakes are pretty high. It's looked upon favorably by God himself. I want to read again verse 19 and 20. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit, even if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable with God. Two ways that it's commendable. Two ways that it's favorable with God to practice submissiveness in this context. It shows sensitivity and responsiveness to his teaching. It shows a good conscience toward God. That's what uh, verse 19 tells us. A good conscience toward God. I want to read something for you because this is foreign language for some here this morning. Our culture has taught you and we've all bought into our culture at one time or another. Our culture teaches us that we need to be in control. We need to be in charge. We need to come second to no one. We are the captain of our own fate. But I want you to listen to what Jesus said. I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Is this an alternative lifestyle to which we're called or not? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who, do, who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full, but love your enemies. That's counterintuitive. It's an alternative to be sure. It's not what the world teaches us. It's not what we in our own selves would practice. But Jesus says, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Wow. How do we live this out? May I say it simply? With difficulty. We're just not wired that way in our fallenness. But it's the alternative lifestyle to which God calls us. Every single one of us. It shows sensitivity and responsiveness to his teaching. A good conscience toward God. It illustrates True humility, a, a cooperative spirit expressed to the point of submissiveness, shows we're plugged into God's way of doing things. We are friendly with, with humility. It's, um, it's one thing to take it on the chin when we're wrong, but to do it when we're right sends another message, a message about Christian character. Now, we've got to admit the fact that we don't show humility consistently, do we? This is extraordinary. All of us must maintain a vigilant watch on our behavior. But there are people in this congregation, as there are in every congregation, because our, our community at large seems to breed them in mass. People with uh, low self-esteem, low self-confidence. 
but they manifest it through what I would call a superiority complex, a strong need to be right all the time. This plays right into the hands of this whole thing of being submissive. If we're confident in and of ourselves, we would have no problem being more cooperative. But when we struggle with that, we got to be Mr. In Charge or Mrs. In Charge. There was a man in one of my pastorates, and the church that I had taken was, had had some issues and some problems. And in fact, there was even some question as to whether they would close it or not before I came to be pastor. And this guy and I would get together for the early day. In the early days, every week we got together for breakfast to talk about the issues in the church and try to deal with these issues in the church. And the guy would say to me at the end of the conversation, now these were not problems I had created, they were problems we were both working on together to resolve. But at the end of more than one conversation, I would hear him say something like this, I hope I've been some help to you today. So condescending. When in reality he lacked self-esteem, he had a low self-image, but he manifested this by what I would call a superiority complex. Am I making sense? just coming through. One day I said to him, how come whenever I go out to meet with you or come out to meet with you, you make me feel like I'm a boy you've taken to raise? He didn't like that comment. But somebody needed to call him on it. It's the way he was manifesting his own insecurity. There was another man in the same church consistently who consistently demonstrated that although he wasn't always right, he was never wrong. The pride just seemed to gush out of him and his personality. Now, all of us are probably there sometimes, but what a pity when someone is so ego-driven that whether wrong or right, they cannot, will not take, rep take reprimand and behave as they ought to behave. Contrast that, if you will, to the behavior Peter calls for. Verse 20 again. How is it to your credit, and I will add the word even because I think that's the sense of the passage. How is it to your credit even if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable with God. I think the issues are related. Peter's not suggesting that we sit passively by, not trying to correct a wrong. But after responding appropriately, he's suggesting we not lose our cool over it. That's the picture here that we be able to manifest a cooperative spirit and, and, uh, and stop behaving and, and, and not stop behaving like a Christian because we're in a tight situation. Behaving Christianly even when wrong, that's what finds favor with God. So here's a situation in the church where somebody is guilty of wrong behavior and uh, they're slighted by the church, but things are set right and apologies are made um, and accepted, but the person punished the member, punishes the membership by dropping out. Is that a way to deal with something? You know, somebody, somebody does us a disservice, apologies are made, things are set right, and then we punish them by absenting ourselves from the fellowship. Not so. It's not a sign of submissiveness, a sign of wounded pride. Or here's a person who's offended by a friend. Make it on a more personal level. Apologies are made and accepted. But the person begins to punish the other person by never having anything to do with them again. 
Sounds more, more like pride than it does a submissive spirit, cooperative spirit. Am I coming through? By the way, this is not an easy message to preach. It's not even an easy message to understand because we're so warped by the world in which we live. But this is exemplified in Jesus' actions, and you can see it in the passage. His behavior is our model. Look at verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Not only that, but his treatment was completely undeserving. Look at 22. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. He endured responding to God, verse 23. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And then lastly in this sub-passage, what he endured, he endured for us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. A couple of questions. Did what Jesus do influence God? I think we'd have to say yes. Did it find favor with God? I think we'd have to say yes. Then it's a good example for us. Our submissiveness will find favor with God also. Now this is good news for those who've ever been beset with how they could be pleasing to God in their work environment or, or in any other subservient relationship. If we take it on the chin and we're patient and we're submissive as compared to being feisty and cantankerous, that means something to God. This doesn't mean to be passively indifferent, but it means to be controlled. It means to live our life humbly. It means to live a life of self-effacement. Again, this is not what the world calls us to. This is an alternative lifestyle to which God calls us to. And it is a lifestyle of influence. So our submissiveness even influences God. That's the thrust of these verses we've just been looking at. Our influence, our submissiveness, I should say, um, is likely to influence even our mates. Now it gets real personal. Peter gives some very specific counsel in light of some very specific circumstances. Counsel to women with unbelieving husbands. And then just in a few lines later, he'll talk about, he'll talk to, um, he'll give some equally specific counsel to believing husbands who happen to have believing wives. But let's take a look at the first thing first. If submissiveness, or submissiveness can be the means of bringing a husband to faith. You say, really? That's right. This may be of great encouragement to you, especially if you're not, not aware of this and you're living in a situation where you're a believer but your husband is not. Look at the verse, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Wives, in the same way, in the same way as we should be submissive as he's just been talking about, in the same way be submissive to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. What is effective in the process is a wife's behavior. Behavior. If she doesn't walk her talk and she claims to be a believer, 
or if she's just like a sermon machine. You bump her and she gives you another lecture. That's going to polarize the situation. It'll drive her husband away. And what wins the day is her behavior. I'm emphasizing that word because it's an interesting word. It's used 13 times in the New Testament. Six of those times it's used by Peter. So he really believed in the behavioral aspects of Christianity. Her behavior should be that of a submissive spirit. It's not all her her behavior should be, but it should include that. This this level of humility, this, this willingness to cooperate. Now, submission does not mean that they become a doormat. I'm yours. Hit me if you like. That's not the mentality we're, we're being called upon to, perform, to, to, to uh, evidence here. It's a cooperative spirit. Peter calls it chaste and respectful behavior. Do you see it there in chapter 3, verse 2? When they see the purity and reverence of your, of your, of your lives... New American Standard calls it chaste and respectful behavior. NIV calls it purity and reverence. Likewise, the NIV says in uh, chapter 3, verse 4, it should be something that manifests your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That's what he's calling upon the women to to manifest. This is preferable even to physical beauty. Say, what? See, our, our culture is all about looks. Our culture is all about what is superficial, actually. There's nothing wrong with beauty. I like it. Most guys do. Most women do. That's why they pretty themselves up. But it's not all there is to life. It's not the real depth of life to which we're called to manifest, to which we're called. Not wrong to fix ourselves up. We need to take care to look our best. In fact, some translations, if you look at verse 3, uh, some translations even uh, insert the word only here to give you the gist of the passage. Your beauty should not only come from outward adornment, such as braided hair and wearing of gold, jewelry, and fine clothes. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Willard Harley, he's a name that's known to some of you. He's written some great books. He's a counselor, particularly a marriage counselor. He wrote a book some years ago called His Needs, Her Needs. And he lists a woman's personal attractiveness as one of the major desires a husband has for his wife. So I guess the adage is that the barn needs painted, painting, painted. You know, it's, it's okay. It's okay to get pretty. It's okay to take care of yourself. But know that there's something more important than looks alone. It's character. Character. Manifested. You like that, huh? <laughs> I got in trouble for saying that one time. And I come to think of it, I might be in trouble again. <laughs> but what's being called upon here is character. Manifested in a cooperative spirit. It's what godly women earlier on made sure was a part of their lives. Look at verse 5 and 6. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They were submissive to their own husbands. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give, give way to fear. So here's what's going on. Let's take a look at this. Submissiveness is uh, self-control, it's humility, self-effacement, it's cooperativeness, 
It's being considerate. And it's what keeps us from living a fearful life. That's what the passage says. We can live life confidently by living this way. Christian wives are not the only ones to whom Peter gives counsel. Christian husbands are also given some counsel. Christian husbands of Christian wives are also included in what Peter has to say. Now, this is interesting to me. It must manifest the situ- or must uh, illustrate what was going on at, in that in that context to which he was addressing himself. Um, there were those women who had husbands who were not believers. But evidently, most of the husbands who were believers had believing wives. But Peter does not leave them out of his counsel. The same cooperative spirit should characterize husbands. See, there's been a prevailing misguiding, misguided opinion for years that the man was to be the absolute law in a household and the wife better take heed and play the doormat. That's nothing more than a cruel misconception. That was never really intended by the authors of the New Testament. I read an article in Christianity Today a few years ago about wife abuse. It was a real eye-opener. What misguided counsel has come from a misconception of what submission means. One pastor, in fact, told a lady who had come to him after she had been repeatedly uh, the victim of personal attacks, physical abuse, physical attacks. She'd been beaten by her husband time and time again. And this pastor said, now you go back, you take what he gives, you submit, it's your duty. I've got one really choice word of counsel to describe that behavior on the part of that pastor. Stupid. That's just foolish. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. Why do some people feel so often that in order to be in God's will, it's got to be contrary to common sense? That's contrary to common sense. The same Bible that speaks of a submissive spirit talks about the sanctity of life. And there's at least one, some reality to the statement that I heard one time, the first time your husband hits you, it's his fault. The second time it's yours. Now I wouldn't be, I wouldn't go to the wall for that. But really, if you're in a situation like that, an abusive situation, your life is at stake. You need to get out of it call attention to what needs to be called attention to. This is not biblical that submissiveness means we become a doormat and become the the focus of abuse on the part of someone else. A couple some time back by the name of Bob and Carol Neuanschwander, easy for you to say, um, wrote a book. The book was called Two Friends in Love. And I want to quote from it today. It's a rather lengthy quote. But here are some important words to husbands about submission. Under the heading, How to Ruin Your Wife's Love. Here's what he says, or they say. No husband can afford to forget that the purpose of marriage is not to become one personality, but instead to become one flesh, one soul. In marriage, we're added up. We're not swallowed up. The suppression of our wives' personalities through the misapplication of our role as husband or the, or the misuse of authority is destructive. It kills the feelings our marriage relationship needs in order to continue. When we consume or erase their distinctiveness through domination, manipulation, or force, we only supply 
or we only display our own self-centeredness. In marriage, the leader and submitter roles are primarily to be adopted in the midst of crisis. When we come to impasse, they're not dimensions of our relationship which must be operative every moment we're together. Sadly enough, however, husbands who are the most dominant leader types tend to feel they've got to be in charge all the time or else they're abrogating their responsibilities. If anything is clear in scriptures about the, the, role, the tone of marriage, it is this. Mates who care deeply about God and about each other pay attention to the priorities of nourishing and cherishing. At the same time, they surrender to God their own instinct to control, realizing that manipulation no longer has value as a means of relating. Ask yourself, how would I feel if I were forced to trade places with my wife just now? Do I always demand things my way? Has my wife altered more of her traits for me than I have for her? Am I committed to preserving her distinctiveness to the same extent I want mine to be protected? Those are good words. Those are timely words. Because we're talking today, because the text is talking about it, we're talking about what it means to be submissive. And it does not mean to be overrun and overruled and overwhelmed. It means that we live cooperatively with those that we're close to. Good words. Now look at Peter's counsel to Christian husbands. It calls for understanding. Verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you, as you live with your wives. I like the New American Standard. According to knowledge, is, it says. This word that's translated in the NIV, be considerate. What kind of knowledge? The knowledge of God. The idea conveyed seems, seems to be that a husband should deal with his wife with spiritual sensitivity, with godly, a godly mind, with godly tact. It's not just, I'm in charge, but it's, she's at heart. I honor this woman with a godly heart. That's the point. Now, guys, can you imagine what life would be like if we did that consistently? Don't do it too abruptly. It might scare your wife to death. But this is what we're called to. The goal is to aggressively get after this, to live in harmony with one another, to live as people united, people who become one, <clears throat> to live cooperatively, to live a self-effacing life manifests, which, is manifest, which manifests humility on a regular basis. Notice he says also in verse 7, treat them with respect as the weaker partner. What does that mean? Weaker morally? No, it means weaker physically. Generally speaking, not in every case, but generally speaking, the husband has it over the wife in terms of brute strength. And he's to keep this in mind. He's the protector of the household. He's the strong one physically. And he's called upon to honor or respect his wife. Treat them with respect, it says. Treat them with honor as the weaker partner and as heirs with you. That, put, that makes the, ground, the uh, playing field ground. That makes the playing field level ground. Let me get it right. As heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Probably the best thing I could say about this passage right now 
is that it is completely an alternative lifestyle to which we're called. The whole world is telling us we need to be in control. We deserve this, we deserve that. We need to take care of number one. This passage says, not so. We need to learn to be cooperative. We need to learn to live submissive lifestyles. So who needs submissiveness? Who needs a cooperative spirit? Those who are married. Those in servant relationships, employer-employee relationships. Those who come under civil authority. This is a God-given means of coping. It's also representative of a greater submissiveness, submissiveness to God himself. Listen to me. Someone said one time, the world is yet to see what God can do with a person who's completely yielded to him. By God's grace, we can be those people. If, among other things, we learn to live lives submitting to one another. That's Peter's message to us. Scattered abroad, a little cluster of Christians in a world that's anti-Christian. That's Peter's counsel to us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you today for your word. If we were left to ourselves and we devised our own means of living, we wouldn't come close to what the word teaches us. But you call us to live lives, among other things, you call us to live lives of mutual submission. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace to do that. To live the lives to which you've called us. So that our marriages can be stronger. Our relationships where we work can be stronger. Our relationship under the government, which has authority over us, can be better doesn't mean we can't work to change things. doesn't mean we can't disagree. But I guess it's really more than anything, the spirit and the attitude with which we disagree that's so important to you. Help us to be Christ-like in the way we live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to wait upon you for the